if you are uh, honest with yourself, you have to admit that there are certain passages in the Scripture that uh, you wonder why God included in the Bible. If you've ever started out to read all the way through the Scriptures, you usually do pretty, pretty well through Genesis and Exodus, and then you hit the wall in Leviticus. And uh, it's easy to just kind of skip right through that and get to the interesting stuff about the snakes and stuff in Numbers. And uh, I've wondered that about First Chronicles 1 through 9, for instance. I don't know if you've ever read that. Nine chapters, nothing but a list of names and genealogies. Now, I know my New Testament well enough to know that there is some prophet in that uh, section of Scripture, but I will, uh, I'm baffled as to what it is, and it'll take a little bit of work before I find out. But fortunately, the passage that we're going to look at today in John chapter 3 is not one of those passages where we have to try to justify its presence in the Scripture. I think probably this is among the three or four... Uh, single greatest passages in the entire uh, Bible. This is one of the jewels in the crown of the Scripture. Our, our revelation from God would be fatally flawed if it weren't for the inclusion of the Lord's teaching to us in John chapter 3. And what I'd like to do this morning with you is to mine this rich vein of truth and extract with you some of the 24 karat gold that God has placed here for us. Now, this passage in John 3 we want to look at this morning, verses 1 through 21, can be divided naturally into three sections. Verses 1 through 8, Jesus talks about the need for the new birth and the nature of the new birth. Then in verses 9 through 15, Jesus explains to us the basis for the new birth, the basis on which God can grant us this new birth. And then in verses 16 through 21, he concludes by discussing the choice that we must make in this issue. So let's look at verses 1 through 8 together to begin our discussion. Jesus here explains in verses 1 through 8 how to be born again. Now, Billy Graham wrote a best-selling book by this very title a couple of years ago, one of the marks of the Messiah, as Jesus could do this in just eight verses. It took Billy Graham uh, a whole book to do this, one of the reasons why Jesus is the Messiah. So let's read verses 1 through 8 together, and then we will work back through this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. John sets the stage for this encounter in verses 1 and 2 by introducing us to this man by the name of Nicodemus. This is the only gospel in which Nicodemus appears. We'll see in a few minutes that he shows up two other places in the gospel of John, but... These three little vignettes are all we see of Nicodemus's life. It's a fascinating character study, as we'll see in just a moment. 
Now, John tells us that he was a member of the Pharisees. Uh, there were about 6,000 of these Pharisees in Israel at this time, and these were the single most influential body in the nation at this time. Uh, the Pharisees were the men who had dedicated their entire lives to put into practice the teaching of the rabbis. The rabbis were the theologians and the exegetes and the Bible teachers of their day. And the, ra the rabbis would, or the scribes rather, would study the scriptures and they would teach the lifestyle that every Israelite was intended to live. And then the Pharisees were the men that had dedicated themselves to as nearly as possible put this lifestyle into practice. So Nicodemus was a man who was dedicated to put into practice the teaching of the Scripture. And I want you to remember that as we go through. Now we're told that he was also a ruler of the Jews. This means that Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was a group of just 70 men now who had all of the legislative and judicial power in the land of Israel. As long as they didn't run afoul of the Romans, they pretty much could direct the national life any way they saw fit. So this meant that, man, that Nicodemus was a man of great influence and status and prestige in the nation of Israel. And remember, this little incident follows right on the heels of the passage that David discussed with us last week where Jesus uh, went into the temple and uh, turned over tables, sent coins flying, sent oxen running from the temple precincts, uh, doves flying all over the place, money changers down on the floor scrambling to retrieve their loose change, and who was accosted by the authorities as a rabble-rouser and a troublemaker. And yet this is the man that Nicodemus, in his prestige and status, seeks out. And John tells us that he does this by night. And I think most likely that's because Nicodemus was a bit embarrassed to be seen associating with a man of Jesus' uh, stature, particularly to be seen seeking him out for information and for counsel. But I think that John also loves uh, symbolism in his gospel. And I think uh, that he could have left this particular little detail out. He didn't need to tell us that this interview took place at night. But I think the point of this is that, that Nicodemus came to him in spiritual darkness, that in his own darkness of heart and soul, he was drawn to the light of the world. Now, Nicodemus addresses him as rabbi. Rabbi was a term of great respect. It was reserved for outstanding teachers of the law. So very likely Nicodemus had heard Jesus teach during the Passover festival. John doesn't tell us that he did any teaching, but that's the only reason that Nicodemus would refer to him as rabbi. And later in the verse, he refers to him as a teacher sent from God. So there's a term of respect here. Nicodemus recognizes this is a man that is worth uh, listening to. And he says, we know that you have come from God. Evidently, there were other Pharisees, perhaps other members of the Sanhedrin, who likewise, as Nicodemus had been, had been impressed with what they had seen of Jesus in the festival, and they talked things over, and Nicodemus was one of this group who actually sought him out for a personal interview. Now, the emphasis in the text is the fact that Jesus has come from God. That's the emphasis in the original text. Nicodemus says, we know that you have come from God. And the reason we know that is because of the signs that you are doing, the miraculous signs that you are doing. Now again, John doesn't tell us what any of those signs were. But he does say in chapter 21, as you remember, that if, if everything that Jesus did was recorded, not all the books in the world could, could contain them. So evidently there were some miracles, perhaps some healings that Jesus did during the, this Passover festival in chapter 2 that we're not told about. But Nicodemus was impressed by those signs, and so he seeks Jesus out. Now, there's a curious thing in verse 3 I want you to know. Notice that what 
Nicodemus does in verse 2 is he simply makes a statement. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do. Now, how does verse 3 start? Jesus answered. Well, did Nicodemus ask a question? No, he hadn't. He'd simply made a statement, sort of an opening uh, gambit to open the conversation. But I think what Jesus was doing was not answering Nicodemus's words, but he was answering his heart. That he knew that beneath that facade of sophistication and education and status and prestige, beneath that Brooks Brothers uh, three-piece robe, was a hungry heart. And that that's why Nicodemus had taken the risk of uh, public embarrassment to seek him out. And so Jesus answered the hunger that was in Nicodemus's heart. Now maybe you're here for the same reason this morning. Maybe you don't even know why you're here. Perhaps you're prosperous, successful, well-educated, have status in the community, a good income. And uh, from every observable sort of external measure, you're a success. And yet within you, there's a hunger that's never been satisfied. And looking for some, uh, in some um, way perhaps even that you're not aware of, you're here trying to satisfy that hunger. Well, Jesus, I believe, has, a, has an answer for your hunger, just as he did for the hunger in Nicodemus's heart. Now, Jesus answers by saying in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you must realize anytime Jesus uses the expression, truly, truly, it's his way of saying to us that this is per- this, what I'm going to say to you now is particularly important. Now, everything that Jesus said was important. Don't misunderstand me. But this is one of his ways of saying what I am about to say is particularly important. Important. It's his way of saying, all right, stand back. I'm going to lay a heavy one on you. Here comes a fastball, high and tight. Get ready. And what he says, I say to you, that is to you, Nicodemus, that's singular, I say to you, Nicodemus, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In answer to Nicodemus's hunger, Jesus immediately begins to talk about a new birth. If you have a uh, New American Standard, you notice in the margin there's some confusion about whether this word again, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, whether that should be translated born again or born from above. Now, the word in Greek can mean either one of those two things. And there have been an endless amount of debate among scholars and exegetes about which of these two meanings John intended. Well, I think John is fond of using double entendres, words that are intentionally ambiguous, because, and he uses them because they can have more than one meaning. And I think John intends for us to see both meanings in this word. That he says to Nicodemus, unless a man is born anew, born afresh, unless he receives a new birth, unless a birth process takes place in his life that has never happened to him before, and unless this new birth comes from, a, from above, unless it originates with God, unless it is a birth that God is responsible for, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So I suggest that we uh, hang on to both meetings. That Jesus is saying, unless a man is born again from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is the only place, by the way, in John's gospel, in fact, in all of his writings, where he uses the phrase, the kingdom of God. It's a familiar phrase in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but this is the only place that John uses it. And I think it's because as we go on, we'll see that what John does is he uses the phrase to have eternal life as his synonym for possessing the kingdom of God. They're synonymous in his thinking, and this is a bridge into his use of the phrase eternal life. 
But I think it's worth thinking about this concept of the kingdom of God just for a moment. If you look up uh, in a dictionary, you'll see that the word kingdom can either have a static idea, that is, it's a territory over which a king rules, or it can refer to a dynamic activity, the activity of a king, his rulership or his royal power. And that's what I would suggest is the meaning here for kingdom. It's a reference to the royal power of God at work in human experience. And so what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, that if you want to see the power of God, the royal power of God at work in your life, if you want to see the royal power of God at work through you in the lives of others, you must be born again from above. You must receive a new life from above. And that's what all of us long for. All of us long for a sense of power in life, a sense of adequacy, a conviction that we have the resources that are necessary to face whatever life throws at us. Now, Jesus says there's only one way to tap into that source of power, a royal power of God that's sufficient for life, and that is to receive a brand new life from God. Now, Nicodemus professes to misunderstand this in verse 4. He says, how can this happen? How can a man be born again? How can he enter into his mother's womb a second time? Now, my assessment is that Nicodemus is choosing to, to misunderstand at this point. There are references in Jewish literature to people who converted to Judaism being referred to as newly born. So the concept of a new birth in a spiritual or religious sense uh, wasn't a brand new one to Nicodemus. Uh, and I think that perhaps what's behind Nicodemus's question is not simply an inability to understand, but a wistfulness, a longing in Nicodemus's heart. In other words, as Jesus begins to talk about being born again, what comes into Nicodemus's mind is that what Jesus is offering is a chance to start all over. And Nicodemus, like many of us, may have said, you know, if I only had a chance to do it all over again, if only I could... Uh, live my life over again and make some of the choices about marriage and vocation and other decisions that I've made, if I could, could take the experience that I've gained and the education that I've acquired, and if I could start all over again and have a chance to make those decisions fresh, uh, how appealing that would be. And so Nicodemus, I think, asked the question out of this wistfulness, how can this happen? I'd love to be able to have a second chance to do it right, but how can it happen? But I think what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is that uh, if we had a chance to do it all over again, learning what we've learned, knowing what we know, we would still make a mess of things the second time. That a second chance is not what we need. As he goes on to explain, it's not another chance that we need, but it's a, it's a new life. It's not a second chance, but it's a new beginning, a brand new source of life that we need. And that's what Jesus explains in verse 5. Again, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus... Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, the real question here is what Jesus means by being born of water and of the Spirit. I think what Jesus is doing in verse 5 is explaining the new birth of verse 3. He says, if you want to understand what I mean by being born again, here's the explanation. It means to be born of water and of the Spirit. Well, in the interest of time, I'll simply share with you how I understand this. I think if uh, you think back over the first three chapters of John, what we've read to this point, the only reference to water that we've encountered has been a reference to the baptism of John. And remember, John himself says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Spirit. 
And I think that's what Jesus is referring to here. He is saying to us that unless you are born of water, unless you are baptized with John's baptism, and unless you were born of the Spirit, unless you were baptized with my baptism, you cannot enter into, you cannot experience the royal power of God in your life. Unless you were born of water and born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, all of us recognize immediately that the hallmark of John's baptism was repentance. That John baptized people who repented and received forgiveness. And the baptism, the actual immersion of these people in the Jordan River, was simply a symbol of what had taken place in response to their repentance. Baptism is and, and always is only a symbol. There's nothing efficacious about being immersed in a, in a body of water. Now, you may have people come to your door. I had a couple of men came to my door just a week ago trying to argue that it is necessary to be immersed in water in order to be regenerated, to receive this new birth. But baptism is simply a symbol, so don't let, them, don't let them snow you. Because the important thing about John's baptism was that he baptized people who repented. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us, that the first step in receiving this new life from God is to repent. To honestly admit that we've made a mess out of things. To admit before God that we do not have what it takes, that we are inadequate for the demands of personal life and family life and business life that we are insufficient for the demands of life, that we are, beyond that, we are fatally, basically flawed people. To admit before God that there is an inner twist about us that makes us inevitably prone to self-centeredness and to selfishness. And Jesus says, unless a man comes to that point where he's willing to lay aside his pride and to honestly admit that left to himself he'll make hash out of everything around him, he cannot be born again. That's the first step in being born again is repenting, honestly admitting our weakness and our failure before God and accepting the full share of responsibility for problems in, in our lives and in our family and in our marriages. John says, remember earlier in the gospel, that this is what prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. I uh, live on a street uh, which I think has more potholes per square inch than any other residential street in Boise. Now, you may have good reason to disagree with me on that. I'd be glad to compare notes at some point. But driving down our residential street, seriously, is like driving through Beirut. It's, uh, you have to weave around craters and so forth. Now, what, and what occurred to me when I was thinking about what John says about baptism of repentance, repentance being the thing that prepares the way for the coming of the Lord, was that if... Uh, the president was going to visit Boise, and they decided to route his motorcade through our neighborhood. The first thing that the ACHD would do would be to come through and fill in all of those potholes and pave them over. That's how you prepare the way for the coming of some great person. Now, I think what John is saying is that's what repentance does. Repentance is a way of filling in those potholes and allowing God to pave them over so he can come in and begin to work. So it's a, it's a street, it's a roadway that he himself can walk. But until those potholes are filled in and paved over, he can't come. He can't work. And I've discovered an interesting thing about potholes, uh, living on the same street now for six years, that uh, we get potholes in uh, some of the same places every year. And the highway department has to come back and fill in the same potholes every year. Now, repentance is like that. If you're anything like me, you've had to go back to the Lord over and over again and say, Lord, I've got a pothole in the same place I had last week. 
And I need forgiveness for that. I need you to fill it in and pave it over so you can again begin to work in my life. And this year I discovered potholes in a whole bunch of new creative places in our residential street. And sometimes we have to come to the Lord and say the same thing. Lord, I've got new potholes. I've never had one here before, but I do. And I, I want you to fill that in and pave it over so my heart is again a place where you can walk, where you can come. So Jesus says that's the first thing. You must be born of water. Come to the place of repentance. Now the second thing that Jesus says is you must be born of the Spirit. I think what Jesus means by this is we must place faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who imparts to men and women the gift of the Holy Spirit. When men and women place faith in Him, begin to depend on Him, what He bestows on them is the gift of the Holy Spirit. He imparts the Holy Spirit of God to the human spirit. And a new birth takes place which makes us a child of God. Now this is what happens in the natural uh, realm every time a new life is brought into the world. A new life comes into being because his parents have imparted to him their very own life. My children are my children and not someone else's children because I have imparted to them my very life. And because I have imparted to them my life, they are becoming like me, much to my wife's uh, disappointment. She's already <laughs> told me how much like me my children are. For instance, she says, you know, our children put things back just where they found them, just like you do. So it's remarkable, the resemblance there. But they are my children, and they are like me because they have inherited my life. I have imparted my life to them. Now, that's what Jesus is offering to men and women in John 3. He says, if you will place faith in me, what I will impart to you is the life of God himself. You will become, as Peter says, a partaker of the divine nature. And the life of God himself will take up residence in your human spirit and begin to transform you from the inside out. Now, in verse 6, Jesus makes it clear why we need this new birth from God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The point of being born of flesh is that it's weak. It's inadequate for the demands of life. And this is the fatal flaw with all of the positive thinking approaches to religion, that whether it's from Norman Vincent Peale or Robert Schuller or Napoleon Hill, is all of those positive thinking approaches to the Christian life are nothing more than an appeal to the flesh. And the appeal is to these untapped reservoirs of human potential that lie deep within us. And if we only began to think positive thoughts about ourselves, we could begin to control our circumstances and turn life around. But Jesus says no. That's impossible. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. It will never have the resources that are adequate for life, no matter how much resolve, no matter how much sincerity is there, no matter how much determination of will is there, it will never be enough. But, he says, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That the Spirit will give us new life in the deepest recesses of our humanity, in our spirit, give us a new life there that will begin to to filter out through our thinking and feeling and, and volitional life until we begin to think and feel and act like God, our Father. And Jesus says, don't marvel about this. Evidently, he saw a look of surprise on Nicodemus's face that he, of all people, would need to be born again. Because Nicodemus, like many people, thought that the only thing that God was really interested in was obeying and following a certain set of regulations surprising to me how many people think that that's the mark of a Christian, is that he's somebody who doesn't do certain things. 
But Jesus says that the life I talk about has nothing to do with this negative righteousness, the things that you avoid doing, but has everything to do with new life and royal power, the ability to begin doing things that you've never been able to do before, positive righteousness. This uh, verse 7 was John Wesley's uh, favorite verse as he went through the British Isles in the revival period of the mid-1800s. And he preached over and over again on this verse. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And somebody came up to him once and said, why is it that you are constantly harping on that one theme? Why are you always saying to people, you must be born again? And Wesley thought for a minute and said, well, it's because you must be born again. It's the simplest explanation he could find. And then Jesus gives us a further insight into this ministry of the Spirit and imparting new life in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. The word for wind in Greek is the same as the word for spirit. I think what John is using is using the activity of the wind as a symbol or a picture for the activity of the Spirit. And I think what John is stressing in verse 8 is the unpredictability of the wind. You don't know where it came from and you don't know where it's headed. Remember a couple of weeks ago when that severe windstorm blew through Boise County, through Idaho City. If our meteorologists had been able to tell exactly where that wind was coming from and exactly where it was going, they simply could have alerted the people in the path of that wind. And everybody else in Boise County could have gone to sleep in peace. But the alert went out to the whole of Boise County because nobody knows where the wind is coming from and where it is going. There's an unpredictability about it. And I think what Jesus means by this is that you never know where the Spirit is going to strike next. You never know where or whom He is going to tap next and bestow on them the gift of eternal life. There's a girl who's now coming to our uh, growth group. Just two weeks ago, she was minding her own business, checking groceries at Albertsons. And one of the uh, girls, one of the vivacious girls in our growth group, just befriended her, has befriended her over the last several months as she's bought groceries at the store, and just began to uh, uh, share, begin a relationship with her, invited to our growth group one week. She was not a believer that week. In the subsequent week, she became a Christian, and just last week came to our growth group as a new believer, a new child of God for the first time. Well, again, the Spirit just sort of caught her completely off guard. She was going simply about her own business when this, uh, when Carol, this little stick of dynamite, blew into her life, and the Spirit imparted to her new life. And that's why we're delightfully surprised over and over again about the, the different people who become believers. Men like uh, Chuck Colson, who would have buried his own grandmother for the sake of the president. Least likely candidate for the new birth, and yet he's become a believer and an effective tool. Men like John DeLorean, men that you'd least expect to come to the Lord. Napoleon, evidently, later in his life, became a sincere believer. And that's what Je Jesus says here. The wind blows where it wishes. You never know where or whom it's going to strike next. Well, we'll, we'll quickly, moving on into verses 9 through 15, Jesus explains the basis uh, for the new life. And by the way, I think, going back to verse 8 just for a second, I think that Jesus said this to Nicodemus with a bit of a twinkle in his eye. Saying to Nicodemus, you never know who the Spirit is going to tap next. Because, as I mentioned, there are two other places in John's Gospel where Nicodemus shows up. In chapter 7, here he comes to Jesus by night, under cover of darkness. In chapter 7, the authorities want to arrest Jesus. Nicodemus is the one who raises his hand and says, Whoops, got due process here. We shouldn't arrest a guy unless we've heard from him. Now again, not a commitment to the Lord, but at least he's willing to come to his defense. And then finally in chapter 19... 
Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, goes to the body of Jesus and anoints it for burial. Comes completely out of the closet and identifies himself in the death of Jesus with this crucified Messiah. And I think that indicates that by the end of John's Gospel, Nicodemus himself had experienced this regeneration, this gift of the new birth from the Spirit. Now in verses 9 through 15, Nicodemus explains why, or Jesus explains the basis of this new life. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. First of all, Jesus gently rebukes Nicodemus in verses 10 and 11. You are the teacher of Israel, he says. You really ought to know better. There are prophecies in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel, remember the Spirit sweeping through the valley of dry bones and giving life to dead corpses. It says, Nicodemus, you really ought to know better about this new birth from the Spirit. But the problem is, in verse 11, you do not receive our witness. In other words, it's not that you can't believe, it's that you won't believe. You do not receive or welcome as a guest into your life the witness that John and I have given to you. I think that's the we in these verses. John the Baptist says the same thing. I say the same thing. You know that Jewish law teaches by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact shall be confirmed. This ought to be enough for you, Nicodemus, but the problem is that you, at this point, you will not. The earthly things that Jesus talks about in verse 12, I believe, are the things he's talked about in verses 1 through 11, things that Nicodemus should have known. And he says, if you won't accept the truth you've already received, how will you accept new truth that I'm about to tell you? Heavenly things. And I think he's talking there about verses 13 through 15. And Jesus begins there to talk about his own death. And he reminds Nicodemus of the story about the serpents in the wilderness in Numbers 21. The nation of Israel was being decimated by this plague of venomous uh, snakes. And, and Israelites by the score were being killed by these snakes. And the Lord said to Moses, there's only one cure, there's only one way to stop this pestilence, and that is to lift one of these serpents up on a staff. And so Moses made a brass model of a serpent and lifted it up on a staff. And then all of the Israelites who looked on that staff with the serpent entwined on it in the center of the camp were healed. That, by the way, has become the symbol for the medical profession even today. If you've ever seen a medical symbol, it's a staff with a serpent entwined on it. It goes back to that Numbers 21 episode. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, the same thing will happen to me. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the midst of the camp and those who looked on that lifted serpent were healed, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross and those who look to him will be healed. The striking thing about that type is that the serpent was the instrument of death. The Lord said to Moses, until the instrument of death is lifted up, no healing can take place. I think Jesus is saying the same thing, that I will become a serpent. The Son of Man will become the instrument of death and be lifted up on a cross. What Jesus meant by that, I believe, is that all of, all of our sin, sin is the enemy of human life, sin is the culprit, and all of our sin, when he hung on the cross, was placed on him. 
all of our greed and covetousness and jealousy and self-centeredness and anger and impatience, all of the things that disrupt life were placed on Jesus. God imputed them to Jesus on that terrible hour when he hung in isolation on the cross. And when Jesus became what we are, God put him to death and turned his back on his own son and forsook him. And Jesus says that must happen in order that new life may be given. Jesus says in verse 15, that's the purpose. The reason I will be lifted up and bear in my body the sins of all humanity is in order that whoever believes might be given new life. And then John explains, I believe, in verse 16. He gives an editorial comment. For myself, I think the quotation ends at verse 15, and verses 16 through 21 represent John's comment on this. And we'll just discuss verse 16 before we go to our time of worship. I want to close with this. But I do think without question that this is the single greatest verse in all of the Bible, and rightly so, one of the first verses that we all memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now John explains that God's love for the world was such that he gave his only begotten Son. Some people think that God is the angry one, that he's peeved with us, that he's out of sorts with us, and that Jesus is the one who loves us, and that Jesus sort of got in the way of the wrath of God. But John tells us, no, the, the act of, of substitutionary death is something that came from the heart of God himself. And John reminds us that God loved the world. That's John's term for all of humanity, everyone in the world, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight. The thing that struck me when watching the events in the, the Libya attack just a couple of weeks ago as they unfolded before our and our television sets, is that the single most important thing about Colonel Gaddafi and about the Libyans is that God loves them and that God gave his son for them that they, the enemies of the U.S., might have new life. And that's the most important thing for us to realize about them. That's why I'm glad we have the the Browns among us who are dedicated to reach the the Muslim world, uh, the Arab world, with the gospel, to extend to them the love that God rightly has for all men. And the proof of love that John points out is that he gave his only begotten son. That's how he proved to all of us that he loved us. Uh, I have an only begotten son. J.D. is two. And he's the most precious little guy in the world to me. And I love a lot of you in this room. But I think if I was faced honestly with the choice of giving you life at the cost of the life of my own son, I couldn't do it. I don't love you that much. But God does. And he did. He gave his only son for us. And John says he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And John means by life not just uh, a quantity of life, not an eternal life, not simply a life that goes on forever, but a quality of life. That you have a life that you can begin to possess now which will last for eternity. New and rich, rewarding, fulfilling, satisfying. And all we need to do is place faith in Jesus Christ. Now, many of you here in this room have already done that. But for John, he always uses the verb to believe in the present tense. Placing faith in Christ is not something that you did, but it's something that you do. 
And that's my appeal to all of us this morning, for those of you that have already placed faith in Christ. Continue, present tense, to believe, to quietly, simply, steadily, continually, to place your faith in Him. Trust in Him to be the one that gives you life, that begins to pull the pieces of your life back together. And if you've never done that, if you're here this morning and you have never experienced this new birth, you've never begun to draw upon the royal power of God in your life, then I appeal to you to do that this morning. Simply repent in the quiet of your own heart and place your faith in Jesus Christ. I have a friend who is remodeling a 1948 Ford pickup. And I've seen the before and during pictures, and it was a total wreck when he started. Hardly even recognizable as an automobile. But he has quietly and patiently begun to sand and to buff and to repaint and to repair and to restore. And I've seen the during pictures, and it's looking a whole lot better. And someday I'm looking forward to seeing the after pictures. It will be a showroom piece, what he's done. And that's a model, I think, of what God wants to do in life. You may be here, and your life is a complete wreck. Well, God wants to begin to restore and to buff and to sand and to repaint and begin to put the pieces of your life back together. And maybe God's already done that work in your life and you're in the, you're in the during phase and he is, uh, hasn't completed his work. Continue to trust him to be the one that does that. And one day all of us will be showroom pieces fit to display before the world. Uh, I'd like you to bow your heads just for a moment and I'll pray with you and then we'll go to our time of worship. One of the things we will celebrate this morning is the Lord's table. Very appropriate in light of this passage that we celebrate his death for us. Particularly, as our heads are bowed, if you were here this morning and you've not placed faith in Christ, I encourage you now in the quiet of your own heart to repent and say to the Lord, Lord, I confess that I am a sinner and that I have made a mess of my life. And I want to place my faith now in you and I ask you to give to me a new birth from God. And if you're here as a believer this morning, I'd appeal to you to continue to place your faith in Jesus. To quietly, steadily, just depend on Him to be the one that rebuilds your life, rebuilds your marriage, restores your family. Would you do that in the quiet of your heart? Dedicate yourself again to that. Father, we thank you for the truth in this passage. We pray now as we go to a time of worship that you would lift our hearts in gratitude and praise and renewal to you. We pray as we gather around the Lord's table that you would remind us of the significance of your sacrifice and that we might together rejoice in you for what you've done. Amen.